So a few years ago, a few of us uh, spent a few days hammocking on Mount Greylock to celebrate my son Drew's 16th birthday. So we had all of our gear, our hammocks and backpacks, all manner of things, including a can of bear spray that we could shoot beers from 50 feet away. Bears? Bears? Big animals, they have teeth, paws, can rip you apart. Those things, shoot at them with this spray. So we had all this stuff. At night in the woods, we were far from electricity and light. You can hear everything, but see nothing. So there are a couple of times over the course of those nights that uh, we were there where you could hear something in the vicinity of the hammocks. And so I'd unzip all my stuff and look out and take my, my light and shine it around to make sure I wasn't going to have to protect my sons from those animals that I can't say the names, apparently. Um, can you imagine if you're in this situation in the dark and you go to take your flashlight out and you click it and nothing, no light? Uh, it's hard enough when you can see what's going on. Darkness around can be pretty intimidating, but it's even worse when you try to flash, shine a light and it doesn't work. In our passage this morning, Paul is telling us that the night is coming toward an end and the day is about to break forth, but the night is still going on. And the darkness is still residing over our atmosphere. While he's talking about this enduring night that will turn to day, he is pointing us to the hope that is ours in Christ. The hope that is ours because the day is going to break forth and salvation is coming. He tells us it's nearer now than it was when we first believed. Now here's an important statement. Hope does not come from us. It doesn't come from us individually, and it doesn't come from us collectively. Now listen carefully to the statement, because at first glance it's probably going to be strike you weird, weirdly. The gospel is not our hope. God is our hope. God is our hope. And the gospel is a message of good news, and that message points to the one who is our hope. The distinction is we don't hope in a message, we hope in the God of that message. A lot of times we'll shorthand it and call it all the gospel. But what we're talking about, when we're talking about the gospel being our hope, we're talking about the God of the gospel being our hope. And this passage is telling us to look to Him. During these days that are characterized by darkness, we want to, the, to cling to the hope that God offers to us, and that hope is Himself. This has always been the way it has been. If you trace through the Scriptures, the the Lord is constantly telling us to have our hope found in Him 
and in him alone. Listen to to these words uh, when God was dealing with Abraham. He said, I am your exceedingly great reward. I am your exceedingly great reward. The psalmist, when he's talking about the great despair of his soul, he talks about God being the source of his hope. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. He is my salvation. According to Psalm 78, parents were supposed to tell their children about God, to talk to them about God, and and to let them know the things that God has recorded so that their hope, they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. So as we're training, teaching our children, pointing them to the Word of God, we're really pointing them to the person of God. Our hope is there, that our hope would be set in Him. Everything we see around in our lives is filled with turmoil and difficulty and instability. But God is static in this sense. He is stable. He is a safe place. He is our hope. When Paul was on defense of his orthodox views, he was standing before a governor named Felix. Listen to what he says in defense of his orthodoxy, meaning he has a a belief system that is in accordance with, with the Old Testament people of Israel. He says this, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept. And there will be a resurrection, or that that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So in his description of, hey, listen, I I come in line with all of the teachings of the Old Testament. He says, I have my hope in God. This is fundamental to the Scriptures, is to, to have confidence not in self, Confidence not in a people group, but confidence in a God who saves, in a God who redeems, in a God who keeps. This is our confidence. The solution to the darkness of our age never comes from within our own resources or our own strength, for we just add more darkness to the mix when we rely on us. Our only hope and the only light in the midst of darkness is a God who is always light. The light comes through the power and the work of God, and He is our hope. Take a look, please, now at our text. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 11. He says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to awake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to you now than when you first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He's telling us we live in a world of darkness. 
And here's what he tells us to do. In verse 11, he tells us to wake up. In verse 12, he tells us to cast off the works of darkness. In verse 13, he says, do not live in accordance with the darkness. And then in verse 14, he essentially says, do not set your mind on the darkness. Do not set your mind on the darkness. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. As we talk further through this, we'll see what we mean about setting our minds there. Not setting our minds on the works of the flesh. He gives a clear indication that the darkness is not just outside of us. It's also inside of us. He says, don't make provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The desires of the flesh, which are contrary to the desires of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, come not from out there, but from it within here. So we have darkness not just outside, we have darkness inside, which is why we can't rely on ourselves to solve our darkness problem. We have to rely on God to solve our darkness problem. If we look to ourselves, we'll add darkness to the mix. Our inner man has lustful desires that arise continuously. And Jesus attested to this problem. Take a look with me at Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Jesus attested to the same problem that we have lusts that arise within us continuously. In our passage in Romans 13, he's talking about the flesh, the remaining part of our human nature. It's, it's like it's hanging out there, trying to lord over us, even though, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, God has said it's decisively been put to death. But it kind of hangs out there, trying to rule over us like a, an overlord. Jesus tells us that these problems of our flesh, they don't arise just from the outside. They really arise from inside. Look at verse 21. He says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from where? Within, and they defile a person. Now, we want to say it's really it's, it's my neighbor's fault that I'm this way, or it's my wife's fault, or my, you know, if you're a woman, it's your husband's fault, or if you're a child, it's my parents' fault, if you're a parent, it's my kid's fault, it's the dumb dog, the, the dog made me do it. Like everything else, I want to blame them. It's always their fault. But Jesus says, really, wickedness has its source here. Darkness. Darkness. We live in a world of darkness, and when we use our own resources, we just add more darkness to the mix. Galatians 5 speaks about the same thing. There's an opposition. There's a war taking place within us. The things of our human nature that desire things that please us, and then the Spirit of God who dwells within us, warring against those desires to bring forth those things that are helpful to us and those around us. We call those the fruitful demonstrations of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, faith, meekness, and self-control. These things come 
not from me, but from a spirit who wars against my human flesh that produces all kinds of other stuff, such as Jesus conveys here in Mark chapter 7. We might try really hard to restrict ourselves in order to avoid sinful darkness. We might put up all kinds of parameters to legislate our fleshly passions. But God warns about how ineffective this is. Take a look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. So we've got all this darkness. It's outside, it's inside. We say, all right, I know what I'll do. I am just going to put really strong, stringent rules in place. And if I, if I have these rules in place, I won't cater to my sinful passions anymore. I'll, I'll have it all covered. There are so many forms of that kind of thinking, whether it be the monastery or whether it just be you know, uh, the, the Christian checklist of you know, I'm going to make sure that I do this and I do this, and I don't do this, and I don't go there. The old expression from back in the day. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't dance, and I don't you know, go with girls who do, that kind of thing. It's like, oh, I've got all these lists. I'm not going to do these things. I won't be contaminated by all this stuff around me. Problem is, the problems inside of you. Making rules doesn't make that sinful lust go away. And that's not my opinion, though it is. It's God's opinion. Take a look at what God says to us through Paul in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 20. Colossians 2, starting in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Now stop right there for a minute. There's a very interesting word that he uses in the Greek it's dogmatizo. Can you hear dogma? Dogma. Principles. Uh, very strongly held principles. He says, if you've died to these things and you're alive to God, why are you trying to have a set of dogmatic principles whereby you will be able to restrain yourself? He goes on and he says, for example, verse 21, do not handle. Don't, don't touch it. Don't taste it. Don't, don't touch it. Stay, stay far away from it, verse 21. Verse 22, these are all referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human principles and teachings. These things, verse 23, these principles, having, having a strong uh, determination, I, doggedly, I'm not going to do, do X, Y, or Z. I'm not going to go anywhere near it. I'm going to keep myself fully away from those dark, evil things. He says, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting, what's the next expression? Self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. So he's, in other words, you, you've just denied yourself. They seem to be really a good, it's a good idea. If you just deny yourself every impulse that you ever have, then everything will be just fine. Self-made religion. He goes on to say, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There's another interesting expression. Indulgence of the flesh. The idea is that they don't satiate the desires of the flesh. In other words, having a strict principle whereby you will keep yourself from every type of sin will not keep your 
fleshly inner man from craving them. So what's interesting is earlier in this chapter, he tells us that we are complete in Christ. In other words, all of our spiritual needs have been met in Christ. Lining up these spiritual principles to make myself better before God, he's just told us that doesn't work. It doesn't work. You've already been made complete. You can't make yourself more complete. Christ makes you complete. So these self-made principles will not produce a better standing before God. And secondly, they won't even keep you from desiring sinfulness. That's not the solution. The solution is not more rules. Is, is that pretty clear from what he's saying here? So in Romans, he's telling us that there's darkness. where We live in the midst of the the, the night, it's coming toward an end. The day is about to break, but we're still there in the darkness. He's cast off the works of darkness. They're out there. Don't walk in line with the, the things of the darkness. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its desires. He's telling us that we have this, these desires within us that, are, that come from within us and denying ourselves that way. Just coming up with a list of rules isn't going to make that go away. Is that pretty clear? All right. So the, the solution is not figure out a way to make my darkness go away. There's better, better hope here. Head back to Romans 13. It's on the screen, but it also I think it's helpful to have it before us as well. Romans 13. I say all of this to make sure that we're very, very clear that the solution to the problem of darkness does not arise from our own resources our own abilities, our own will, our only hope is God. So what is the solution that Paul offers to you and to me in the midst of this? Look at verse 14 again. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we just take, out the, take that phrase and say, be clothed with Christ. Be clothed with Christ. The word put on is the Greek term in duo. It simply means to take some clothing and to put it on. But um, that, this begs a little bit of question, doesn't it? Any of you have a, a, uh, an emergency kit? Maybe you have one in your car, or you have your emergency kit for like if you're going to go out into the woods somewhere, you've got your emergency backpack, you've got all kinds of stuff in that thing. Um, maybe there's some rope, some first aid kits, yeah, you've got some first aid kits in there, some water, maybe you have some MREs, meals ready to eat, don't recommend eating those unless you have to. You've got a knife, a flashlight, maybe some waterproof matches in there, some duct tape, you've got to have duct tape. Everything is better with duct tape. Yes. Maybe you have a rain poncho in there. And of course, a change of underwear. <laughs> have to have that. Why would someone have these things? For emergencies, of course. Now we were told in our backpack to throw in the clothing of Jesus Christ. Put on Jesus Christ. None of us have that backpack with a set of clothes to chuck on. 
It's, it's what our minds go to. Put it on. It's like, take it. All right, I've got it right here. It's like, I've got this resource. Now I'm going to put it on. Ugh, doesn't work that way. I, I, wish, I wish it were that easy. Change, you know, get out of these clothes. Put on the Christ clothes. Then I'm all set. Uh, it'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? Like, make a lot of problems go away. There are some interesting and challenging concepts to our minds here that I want for us to talk about this tension. There's a tension because he's telling us to do this. He's telling us to take these clothes and put them on. But there's more to the story because God's word has given us a fuller picture than just one passage. Paul tells us to put this on, put on Christ, and in similar expression, put on the new man in other places. However, this is good news for us. God has also told us that this has already happened. He's already told us that we have put on Christ. You can read about it in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27. You can read about it in Colossians chapter 3. We've already put on the new man. We've already put on Christ. We're already equipped. We've already been suited up. This is good news. He talks about it in these two ways. Okay, put it on, but know this, you have already have it on. This last Wednesday night, we were thinking about some of the wonderful benefits that are ours because of Jesus' atoning death for us. I want to just cover just a couple of these. They'll just be on the screen here for your consideration. To think about what it means that God has already suited us up with Christ. We've already put on Christ. Think about these things. Through the doctrine that's called propitiation, there is no judgment left for our sin. Because Jesus absorbed all that judgment. Through the doctrine known as expiation, there is no record left of our sin. There's no record left. As a believer, God looks at you and sees pure, spotless, righteous standing. Expiation. All my sin debt has been removed. Through the wonderful doctrine of redemption, through the death of Jesus Christ, I am no longer in bondage to sin. Sin is no longer my master. I don't have to say, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Whatever you say, sir. I'll do it right now. Want to do it twice? I'll do it twice. I don't have to. I have had that bondage removed through redemption. Because of the great doctrine of reconciliation, There is no conflict left between God and me. I have been placed in a position that the peace of God, I have peace with God. He doesn't view me as an adversary. He views me as his son. This is through reconciliation. This is done. We are loving sons and daughters of a loving Heavenly Father. Through the atonement of Jesus Christ, he has a dominion. And that dominion means that there is no war to lose. There is no war to lose. He's already decisively won this victory over our soul. Every adversary of our soul has already been defeated. From, from, the, the, from Satan and angels to the law that stands against us to our record of sin that stands against us even even to our own flesh that wars against us. Jesus has decisively won this victory that my flesh no longer has an opportunity to decisively win because Jesus has won this war. This is part 
of the reality of what it means that we have already put on Christ. The war is over. The victory has been won. This is because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So while our passage is telling us to put on Christ, the reality is we've already put Him on. We are forever united with Him. In Romans chapter 6, it covers vital, important concepts about the union that we have with Jesus Christ. He tells us that we died with Him. We've been made alive in Him. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're dead to sin and alive to God. This is all because of what He's done. I didn't make myself dead to sin. And I didn't make myself alive to God. He did. So let's think about this. When I do something, spiritually, it's not done right. Is that true or false? That's true. I am marred in my activity spiritually. When Jesus does something, is it done correctly or incorrectly? Is it half done or all done? It's all done. So when the Bible tells me that he has made me dead to sin, it's finished. When the Bible tells me he's made me alive to God, it's finished. When the Bible tells me that I have a distinctive break in sin's lordship over me, that's the reality. So when he tells us then to live and put on Christ, we're talking about putting on the hope that God has given us. We're talking about Jesus, who is our hope. He's the, the confident assurance that this has been definitively done. We're putting on the hope of Christ. God the Spirit has made us alive. That's the doctrine of regeneration. Our record has been made perfect. That's the doctrine of justification. And we have been accepted in the Beloved. This is what God has done through Christ. We could go on and on with doctrinal terms. Doctrinal terms matter. They matter a great deal. If you understand justification, reconciliation, expiation, propitiation, you don't live your life in fear. And you don't live and say, oh, I, I messed up again. Now what's God going to do to me? Everything that was needed to be dealt with with your sin has been dealt with by Christ on the cross. Amen. God is so good to us. Amen. We struggle. We struggle when we sin. It's frustrating. It's discouraging. It's disheartening. But when we look and we put on the reality of what God has accomplished through Christ, our hope remains undaunted. We have hope restored when we put on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These things are true about everyone who has trusted Christ. Do we always feel that way? Not so much. But God is telling us to live our lives in light of these truths. You have put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is all your righteousness. Now live in confidence of what He has done for you. That's the first part. We put on, we're clothed in Christ. We have this confidence because of what Christ has done on our behalf and we have to constantly be refreshed in it, don't we? Because every day, we live in some way that reveals a little bit of us. And so we need to be refreshed in the reality of who He is. And so we remain undaunted 
even though our lives speak in sometimes a different tone, we say, but I know what my Savior has done. We don't do this to be dismissive of our sin and to say, oh, it's not that big of a deal that I sinned. It's not that. That is a different matter altogether. When I sin, and unfortunately it happens daily, it grieves me. But then I remember Christ. Put on your hope. Put on Christ. Then he tells us in the second half of the verse, back in chapter 13 and verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So the second way we would look at this is hope in the one who has delivered you. Now we've just been talking about it very similarly to that, so we're just going to touch on a few areas here, here <coughs> that I hope will be helpful. Our thinking is really important in this matter. He says, and make no provision for the flesh. The word provision there, make no provision, is pranoia. Pranoia. It means to give thought or forethought to something. Don't give thought, forethought, and planning to the flesh. Don't let your mind be preoccupied by all the things that arise from within. What arises from within? So I'm not going to... The, the list is long, but anxieties arise from within. Depression arises from within. Bitterness, anger, malice, wrath arise from within. Covetousness arises from within. Lust arises from within. Hatred arises from within. A thirst for prominence call that pride, that arises from within. Just keep thinking about your, who, who you are and your flesh, and what are you going to be thinking about? Terror. Abs the, the absolute opposite of what we want is what we'll think about. It's like telling a kid, you know, don't, don't eat those cookies on the, on, the, on the counter over there. So they're going to be like, oh, there are cookies? <laughs> oh, man, haven't had a cookie in a long time. I remember how good that cookie was the last time I had it. I wonder if I can grab that cookie. I wonder if I can grab that cookie and no one will notice. I wonder if I can browbeat my parents into letting me have that cookie now. It's just small. Like, you know how that works. Well, it's the same thing that happens inside of us. And God is letting us know, don't spend your time occupied on everything that you're feeling inside. I had a text conversation with someone earlier this week. They were discouraged. It's like, hey, listen, let me encourage you to not listen to your emotions. Your emotions are jerks. Aren't they? My emotions are jerks. So get out of here. You're just trying to bum me out all the time. Go, you go over there. Let me focus on something that's actually true that's going to really help me. Um, the more you think about your, your inner man, the more you're prone to cater to your own sinful desires. Now, our minds need to be renewed, and that's the concept. He says, don't spend all your time thinking about what you're feeling. He says, let God renew your mind. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, this bookends the beginning of this discussion. So, you get Romans chapters 1 through 11. They're all the mercies of God, right? You get to chapter 12, and he says, I beseech you, I'm going to do it in King James Version because it's what's in my head. 
I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you may present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He says, instead of presenting yourself to whatever it is you feel, lay yourself out before the Lord. Can you trust him? Have you seen in Romans 1 through 11 how God deals with you? Can you trust that God who who saves sinners like you? Can you trust a God who, who has made peace with you by his son Jesus Christ? Can you trust a God who has taken you from being an enemy and making you his own son and given you an inheritance as a son? Can you trust that one? Can you trust a God who says, no matter what else goes on, I will save my people? Can you trust that kind of a God? And he says, okay, so place yourself at my disposal. And how do do we do that? He says in verse 2, he says, don't let the outside world squeeze you into its mold. That's the opposite of what I've given you. I've given you peace and love and joy and the world is going to suck all that right out of you. Don't suck, let the world squeeze you into its mold. Instead, he, he says, be conformed. That's something you can't do. That's something that God has to do. Be conformed by the renewing of your mind. Right here. Let me renew your mind. Let me change your view. But if I'm always thinking inwardly, if I'm always thinking about how I feel about something, I'm not going to have my mind changed. I need to look outside of myself and up to a God who can change a guy like me. And you need to do the same thing where you turn your gaze outside of you and look to him and let him change you permanently. It's an amazing thing. Take a look at uh, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. It's a related passage in Philippians chapter 2. He's talking here about the humility of Christ that resulted in his his exaltation. And God uses circumstances. He uses his word. He uses people. He uses the gatherings of the church and worship as part of his process of transforming us. But ultimately, he's the one that's transforming us. It's vitally important that we remember that He is our hope. Not our ways. God is reminding us that He is our hope and He does this continuously by His Word. Take a look at verses 12 and 13 of Philippians chapter 2. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if, you, if the sentence stopped there, we'd be like, all right, what, what's going on here? But it doesn't stop there. It goes on in verse 13 to say, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. In verse 12, the whole meaning of verse 12 is radically transformed by verse 13. He's not saying, all right now, make sure you you work and earn your salvation and demonstrate your worth to me so that I I will be assured that I will take you into my kingdom. He says, let the salvation that God has worked in you come to the outside. And that's only going to happen 
by God. It's the only way it happens. He says, for it is God who energeo. It's a great word. You hear energy? To make operative. It is God at work within us. He's energizing us. It is God who is at work within you, both to will, that's to produce a desire, and to perform. He actually uses energeo a second time, which is kind of interesting. It's God who is working in you, both to will and to work out his salvation. He's energizing us to have his life realized within us. This is exactly what he's talking about in Romans chapter 13 and verse 14. Having God's powerful work come out of us and demonstrated in us. He's not saying, all right, you, you know, go into your emergency backpack and pull out your Jesus clothes, put them on and you'll be all set. He says, no, put on Christ. He's your hope. You be renewed in the spirit of your mind and don't meditate on the way that you're feeling constantly because it's always going to lead you astray. If you're taking all this forethought into your flesh, you're going to be an absolute disaster of a person spiritually. He says, instead, trust me. Trust me. God is actively at work Actively changing you, renewing you, restoring you, and making you exactly what he wants. God is at work within us, energizing us. He is at work both in our will and in our lives. He is making us alive to his good purposes. So as Romans 13 comes to a close, Paul paints a picture of darkness that is hanging over our scene. But he speaks of the light, the light that is coming and it's nearer now than ever before. While we remain, we're watching and we're waiting for that coming day of everlasting love and joy and peace and righteousness. We have our hope already present. Our hope is already present with us, in us, and for us. He provides hope both for the future and for today. Because he is our hope in life and in death. So we say to this, put on your hope. Your hope is a confident expectation of the finished work of Christ that results in the finished work of his work applied to our lives. He's placed us into himself. It's a sure end. That means it's a sure process. What God has begun in you, he will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we think of these things, and we are amazed that you have loved a people like us. You have given us life, and you've given us reason to trust you in the midst of our lives. Help us to rest in you and to place ourselves in your care. Help us to trust you in the in and out of life that our minds would be fixed upon you and fixed upon the hope that we have in Christ. Transform us. Change us. We don't want the works of darkness to characterize our lives. We want to walk properly as in the day. We want Christ to be displayed in our lives in beautiful tangible ways where people can see your love and your light and your peace 
residing within us. We know this is your work. We come underneath your work, desirous of your transforming power. In Jesus' name, amen.